from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department Inspector General will examine how the Navy handled the coronavirus outbreaks on ships and submarines. The IG office says it will also look at how the Navy's implemented preventative measures across the fleet. Defense News reports the IG office initiated the project internally. It'll be similar to an audit. The Senate Armed Services Committee will push back work on the National Defense Authorization Act until June 10th at the earliest. The previous goal for the start of the markups was next week. Politico reports the House Armed Services Committee hasn't yet rescheduled its markups. Lieutenant General Joseph Guastella is the new Air Force Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations. He's leaving his current job as commander of U.S. Air Force Central Command. Federal News Network reports he's done work developing contingency plans for 20 nations. The Navy says it'll buy at least 20 frigates. It's buying 10 to start, and the Navy's acquisition leader, Hondo Gertz, wants the first one operational by 2030. Brian Clark is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's former special assistant to the chief of naval operations and former director of the CNO's Commander's Action Group. He's writing about the frigate program in Defense News with his colleague, Timothy Walton. Brian, welcome. It's great to see you again. Give me a thumbnail of what we're learning about the award of the frigate contract first. Sure. Thank you, Francis, and thank you for having me on. Uh, the frigate contract is going to award uh, Finknet Marinette Marine up in Marinette, Wisconsin, uh, 10 frigates uh, and, and the designing of the frigate. So they'll, they'll design the frigate over the next two years, and then they'll begin, begin construction of it in approximately 20, uh, 2022. Um, then uh, it'll take four or five years to build the frigate, it'll be delivered, and then the Navy will deploy it uh, for its first deployment in approximately 2030. So that's right now the, the current plan for the frigate. The Navy intends uh, to build up to 20 frigates based on its shipbuilding and acquisition plans right now, but only the first 10 are being awarded to Finkentary uh, Marine right now. All right, you and Timothy are writing under the title, Build a Fleet, Not a Constituency. What's your concern that this program could potentially turn into that generates that title for your work? Well, there's a lot of uh, uh, voices out there saying that we should build a large number of frigates. So that right now the Navy's planning to build 20 of them. Uh, and uh, there's talk about building up to 70 frigates so over time. Um, one challenge we see with that is in the current work that we're doing to analyze future force structure with the Office of the Secretary of Defense and the Navy is uh, that the cost to maintain and man a frigate program uh, is going to be an ex ex a cost that the Navy may not be able to afford going forward. Right now, the Navy is already having challenges with the costs of manpower uh, and maintenance for its existing fleet. And to grow that fleet by a large number of frigates is probably not going to be sustainable. So that's one challenge we see um, for the Navy's frigate program if it expands significantly beyond its current plan for 20. The life cycle costs of anything are something you and I have discussed on a number of occasions over the years, Brian. Why do you think it is that that's not something that's planned for maybe as well as it could be? Because you and Timothy write in this piece, um, $60 million a year annually to operate a frigate, that's only 25% less than a destroyer, which you point out throughout the piece doesn't, ha isn't, doesn't approach the capability of a destroyer in some ways. 
Right. So for the for the Navy, uh, the operations and sustainment cost is about two thirds, you know, that of a, a destroyer. Yet you're only getting about a, a third of the missile capacity of a destroyer. Um, so if you're looking at it strictly in those uh, weapons terms or firepower terms, uh, it doesn't seem to be a good trade. Um, also, uh, you're looking at the, the long-term cost of the frigate um, being something that is a future cost that that some you know future uh, civilian and military leaders are going to have to deal with. So that's that's one of the incentives that drives um, buying things that maybe you can't afford long-term and total ownership cost being lesser concern for current leaders than maybe it should have been. You and Timothy write in this piece, Defense Department leaders, instead of building more frigates, should determine the overall number and mix of ships that it needs and can afford within realistic budget constraints. Are you worried that they went to this hull kind of on an ad hoc decision and maybe not as part of an overall fleet strategy? Uh, well, the, uh, the the frigate came out of a fleet architecture study that we had contributed to, as well as the Navy. Um, and so we thought a frigate was an appropriate platform. So the Navy needs to have frigates, because one challenge of today's fleet is uh, they essentially only have destroyers and cruisers, and then a small number of littoral combat ships that are just entering the fleet. Uh, destroyers and cruisers are large surface combatants. They have crews of two to 300 personnel. Um, they cost uh, nearly, I guess, almost $100 million a year to operate. Um, and they have a pretty significant acquisition cost, but they're great platforms. Um, but you need something other than that to do a lot of the missions that the Navy does, like escorting tankers through the Strait of Hormuz or, or conducting training operations with partner navies in the South China Sea. Uh, destroyers can do that, you know, but they are also a very expensive platform to use for those purposes. Um, littoral combat ships are going to be used for that to a greater degree, but the frigate will be a great platform to provide essentially the same capability as the destroyer, with a lower cost because they cost about half or less to build um, and about two-thirds as much to operate and sustain. So there's there's an opportunity here for the Navy to be more affordable um, with the frigate, but I don't think the frigate is necessarily um, something that you need to build uh, you know, 70 of in order to get that benefit. You write the Navy would be better served by adding missile-equipped corvettes like those in European or Asian navies. What do those ships do, and what's the cost construct look like, and, and the maintenance and upkeep construct look like, Brian? Uh, so those Corvettes are you know, probably about half again the size of the frigate. So the frigate that the Navy is planning on building is a 6,500-ton know, ship, which is about two-thirds the size of a destroyer. Um, the Corvettes we were looking at and that we put into our latest study um, are about a, a half or, two, or a third the size of, a, of the frigate. So they're a smaller ship. Um, but they have a, a, as much missile capacity, um, a crew of that was probably going to be about a third or a half that of a frigate. So their operations sustainment cost is going to be about half that of the frigate, while they provide about equivalent firepower um, when it comes to like a missile-to-missile -missile exchange, which is increasingly the, the direction of naval warfare is missile exchanges. So we saw that the, if, you, if missile capacity is something the Navy is looking for, if distribution is something the Navy is looking for, then this missile frigate or this missile corvette rather is a platform that makes sense um, from a cost basis as well as a capacity basis because you can buy more of them. Brian, we have less than 30 seconds left. You write at the end of this piece along with Tim that U.S. Navy is at the beginning of a period of dramatic change. Existentially, what does that change look like, say, five years out that is to the benefit of United States national security? Uh, fundamentally, the Navy needs to shift to a larger number of smaller platforms or unmanned platforms uh, rather than having a small number of large, expensive platforms. We're already seeing with coronavirus is that um, a pandemic can, can cause one very large shift to be taken out of action uh, relatively quickly. 
Um, if you had a larger fleet of smaller ships, that loss would be more incremental and more gradual. So you can already see the benefits of distribution, even just looking at this isolated case of the coronavirus pandemic. Brian Clark, excellent work as always. Thanks for your insight. Thank you, Francis. I appreciate it. Up next, acquisition reform in the National Defense Authorization Act. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why industry's not happy about the Pentagon's plan. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Senate Armed Services Committee's pushed back deliberations on the National Defense Authorization Act until at least June 10th. That gives the Acquisition Reform Working Group a chance to push back on some acquisition reform ideas the department wants. General Hawk Carlisle, U.S. Air Force, retired as president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association. Hawk, it's good to see you again. Thanks for coming on the program. What is it that you see so far that DOD has asked for in the NDAA this year that you don't like? Uh, well, thanks, Francis. It's great to see you again, my friend. Thanks for having me on. You know, there's a couple of things. There, you know, there's a natural tension between, um, you know, use, good use of taxpayers' money and doing as well as you can with respect to the dollar and buying power you have with inside the defense budget. And then, you know, the manufacturers have to have a profit margin earnings per share. So, there's just a couple of things that I think are a little bit um, challenging for industry. Uh, I think one that you've heard a lot about, I think um, there have been uh, Senator Grassley talked about it the other day. The first one would be that uh, the proposal to turn the future year defense plan program objective memorandum, the fight at Palm, uh, to, a, to classified, which would uh, preclude a lot of industry, especially small business, from having access to to where to put their money, where to invest that OSD is going to invest in. So I think classifying the fight up is, uh, I, we're not, we don't think that's a good idea. There's another one uh, that has to do with uh, detailed manufacturing and process data. You know, that's a form of intellectual property for companies and uh, protecting that uh, is part of their business plan and part of how they maintain a viable business. So. The idea that uh, DOD could release their that intellectual property from a particular manufacturer to third parties is a bit of a challenge as well. And I think it requires a larger intellectual property discussion, not just this one piece of legislation. So those are two that kind of stand out to uh, to NDIA. What does the the unusual situation in which we find ourselves mean for your ability and the other groups that you're partnering with, uh, the ability of all of you to basically let members of Congress know what it is that concerns you. Um, it, it strikes me just the fact that everybody's not gathered in the same place must make it infinitely more difficult for you to be able to express yourselves. Yeah, I, I think more difficult is the key word there. I mean, it, we're spending a lot of time. We're 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 reaching out. It, it's individual instead of as groups. So, we reach out to offices, to staff directors, to um, most uh, liaisons from uh, different senators and congressmen's office. We're uh, trying to. We're actually, you know, I think as the saying goes, we're probably working twice as hard. Um, to get the same amount done just because it takes that much more effort. So we're, we're working pretty hard on that. Uh, and the same thing with OST. We have great communication with uh, uh, 
Secretary of Defense's uh, entire staff, and so we're constantly communicating. And a lot of times it's one-on-one -on -one or small groups, so it, it takes, you know, five or ten calls, five or ten engagements to get the same that you used to be able to get with one. I want to go back to this letter that you are sending in concert with a couple of other uh, organizations, ACEC, CompTIA, and ITI. Um, to the leaders of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. You mentioned a couple of the things that you and your, your fellow uh, organizations write about. Another one I wanted to ask you about is requiring contracting officers to determine a commercial equivalent for every procurement. On the surface, that doesn't sound like such a bad idea, especially given the department's desire to use commercial solutions as much as possible. What's the complication there uh, that you see, Hawk? Well, you know, in a lot of times, I think fair and equitable prices is a big part of that. Um, but in a lot of in a lot of cases, you just they don't have the data, and um, if there's uncertified data or uncertified cost information, um, and it's assuming that things are, are the the commercial uh, part of this uh, directly translates to how it's being used with respect to uh, DoD and how they're going to use it. So I, I think it's. Um, you know, some of this is in response to the tragedy that occurred with Transdime and that illegal activity. So I understand the OSD's uh, desires, but in this case, I think it needs more research. We need to look at it and, and understand uh, how you get that cost information, how you make that um, uh, transition from a commercial uh, capability to something that's used in the defense industrial base. So I just think we need to do a little bit more work in figuring out uh, how exactly this works. The way it's written now, I think, uh, is actually, uh, it, it, it's too broad, too liberal. We need to have a little bit more specifics as we go forward. We have about 30 seconds left, General, and I'm, I have not done this in the month and a half or two months that we've been doing these kind of interviews, but I have to ask you, what is that figure that is behind you in your office there? I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, that's uh, it's an honor of our uh, SOFIC, uh, Special Operations Forces Industry Conference. We're doing it virtually this year. Uh, it's one of the displays we usually have at the Tampa Convention Center uh, of a gigantic SOF operator um, uh, representing those uh, incredible men and women uh, that serve our nation and wear the uniform of the nation. So it's, uh, it's an honor to all our special operators, warfighters. General, it's great to have you on the program. Nice to see you, Hawk. Thank you. Uh, Francis, great to see you again, my friend. Thank you very much for having me on. Up next, managing the Air Force's advanced battle management system. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's the plan and the cost estimate for the program? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Force wants to use its advanced battle management system to connect its equipment and offer a clearer view of the battlefield. A new Government Accountability Office report finds that the Air Force could do more to develop a complete plan and keep Congress in the loop. Marie Mack is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks for joining me, Marie. Thank you for having me. The Air Force has said they're taking a non-traditional approach with this program. What does that mean? 
This approach is where they'll demonstrate different capabilities, potential capabilities for this advanced battle management system every four to six months. And that's showing right now they did one in December, which had demonstrated some commercially available capabilities and that they could do this effort with a different approach of being iterative. The approach shows promise. They hope to conti uh, continue these demos every four to six months and identify potential technologies. But it's not the issue of doing these demos. The Air Force bottom line has not established a sound acquisition business case for ABMS. And why do you think that is? Is that because they're moving more quickly or they think this, um, this style of acquisition maybe doesn't require it? What's driving that? I think partially it's important to remember for this ABMS system, originally it was intended to replace a few legacy systems and those legacy systems were to identify certain threats. That has changed over time. They've evolved in terms, envisioned a much broader effort now, which has become a cloud network that connects all the different various sensors on all the assets that the military uses, for instance, on aircraft, ship, drones, everything that the military uses to provide this common picture on all the threats, ultimately sharing information in a joint operation operations environment. So I don't think it's necessarily the approach that they're taking. It's the fact that it evolved to be a much broader vision over time, and that's been more recent. So they haven't had really spent the time to develop the, the requirements that you need for a business case for ABMS. What are the specific um, elements that are missing from their business case? For us, the key elements of this business case is the first one is identifying and requiring, um, defining the firm requirements. While the Air Force identified some broad requirements, such as the importance to interoperate between different systems, provide real-time information, it has not defined or communicated more detailed requirements that would inform the technologies, the software, engineering capabilities that are needed. For example, if you were to build a house, you need a blueprint to identify the most basic things, the number of levels in that house, the number of rooms, the overall size. In comparison, the Air Force is relying on industry to bring them these mature technologies as solutions for ABMS, but industry needs that blueprint. Another, the other important elements that we've discussed in our report were to have a roadmap to ensure that the technologies are mature when they're needed, such as that the technologies will work as intended when it's the appropriate time. And then you need a cost estimate to inform your budget request to be able to make your right investment decisions. And then an affordability analysis. That'll ensure sufficient funding is available within the overall priorities of the Air Force. But again, until you get those requirements, it's hard to address any of those elements. And without these critical elements of a sound acquisition business case, we found many, many times in a lot of our work it often results in increased risk for schedule delays, cost growth, and integration issues. So what were the recommendations that you made then in your report? Congress already required the Air Force to define and report on ABMS requirements by this June, so therefore we didn't make that recommendation. Our key recommendations, which the Air Force agreed on, were based on these key elements of any successful acquisition um, business case to develop this roadmap for maturing technologies and then have a cost estimate and an affordability analysis. Now, we also recognize because the approach is unique, they could also take a little bit more unique approach with this business plan, a business case. It can evolve over time, but you have to establish the baseline first. 
You noted that the Air Force agreed with you. What specifically did they say in response? Did they set out any sort of timeline? They have not, but we will continue to work with them. And I think they are, this is an important mission. They will have to do something to move forward. And it's important for us and for Congress to have that oversight. And we will continue reviewing this as the, as the program progresses. Are you seeing this, this need for a business case as a priority to Congress? Are you seeing anything from um, the Pentagon about it? I think it's an important business case just to get the effort on the right track. You can ask, you can have um, these demos, but it's hard for industry to participate if they don't know ultimately what type of technologies are you looking for? What, are, what is your end goal? What do you hope to achieve when you finish this effort? It has to get down to firmer requirements to be able to lay out how industry can play. And like I said before, this approach is, the approach definitely shows promise. If it's well planned, it could increase innovation by requiring multiple contractors, including those that don't usually engage with DOD to compete for contracts. And our work has shown competition is always really important. It's key to maintaining government leverage and contracting and controlling costs. It could also reduce risk for the Air Force so they're not locked into one long-term development effort with just one contractor. And it would also allow the Air Force to more easily at some point move off from unsuccessful development efforts. So it's all a good, these efforts are really important, but it's important just to lay the groundwork to be able to move forward appropriately. Otherwise you're kind of spinning your wheels. You're just doing the same, you're doing different things, but you're not sure what you're gonna to get to and what's the answer. Thank you so much for joining me, Marie. I appreciate it. Thank you, thanks for having me. I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.